Hello, and welcome to Connect, the weekly podcast of the California MBA, featuring one-on-one interviews with movers and shakers in the mortgage industry. I'm Susan Malazzo, CEO of the California MBA, and very happy that you could join us today. Before I get to today's episode, I'd like to thank our present, our 2023 President's Council sponsors. These are a handful of companies that have provided a tremendous amount of financial support for our association this year, in large part so that we can continue to be the strong voice to represent the real estate finance industry before the California State Legislature and our regulators. This year's President's Council uh, sponsors include AmeriHome, ArchMI, Consolidated Analytics, Funding Shield, Guild Mortgage, Incelerate, Rocket Mortgage, and Western Alliance Bank. Thank you all so much for your support this year. Instead of welcoming a guest on today's Connect episode, we'll be sharing a recorded session from this year's Western Secondary Market Conference. The conference included a dynamic session on the topic of affordable housing, including a deep dive into products, strategies, and current trends in the affordable housing space. The conversation was led by David Batney of Guild Mortgage and included some great industry veterans sharing some very valuable information. So I would like to share with you our session from this year's Western Secondary Market Conference. And uh, thanks to all of you that joined us this year. Take a look. We kick off the session. I thought it'd be a, a great start to have each panelist define what affordable housing means to them. So I'll just go in the same order here, starting with Sarah and ask each panelist to uh, define affordable housing. Sure. I'd say for, for me, affordable housing is about stability um, all across the housing ecosystem. You know, sort of first and foremost, knowing that you have a safe place to stay and to raise your family. You know, I think here we were, I'm mostly focused on home ownership, but being here in this great state of California, it's hard to not it's, it's, it's hard to not acknowledge the, 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 the severe challenges across the ecosystem. I was, um, I arrived uh, to LAX and ended up driving up to um, stay with a friend up in Thousand Oaks. Arrived very early, like way too early to, to knock on the door. I think it was like 6.30 in the morning. And so I just went to a Starbucks and the lot was like a quarter full with people sleeping in their car. Um, and I think that that was, you know, it's, it, we're seeing these kinds of acute housing challenges all over the country um, in places you wouldn't expect, you know, 10 years ago, um, and of, of course, here in California. And then, you know, in other parts of the housing ecosystem, I think there's some common principles. There's the, as I said, just the first and foremost, knowing you have a safe, predictable place to stay. A predictable payment, you know, knowing that you can, you know, afford your your monthly payment and have something left over to be able to take care of your family, invest in the future, and then of course with home ownership, being able to really build assets, um, you know, that that kind of stability has been such a foundation for you know middle the middle class and and you know and and it's probably for everybody but at the very tippy top, it's, it's pretty, a pretty important path to just you know, financial well-being for a family. So um, that is a very long answer to what affordable housing means to me. Hopefully it makes up for my short bio. <laughs> Wonderful answer, thank you. Ty. Well, I actually looked up the um, universally accepted definition of affordable housing. <clears throat> and it was quite depressing. So affordable housing can be defined as any dwelling where the occupying household can obtain 30% of their gross monthly income, including utilities. 30% of your gross monthly income, including utilities. So currently, uh, more than one in seven households is paying more than 50% of their monthly income to their housing payment alone. One in seven households, that's including renters and owners. And according to the National Low Income Housing Coalition, there is no city in the United States where a family can afford a modest two-bedroom apartment on minimum wage. So now what does this say? This says we are living in a country that is becoming increasingly housing insecure. And that is deeply dangerous because it's not building communities that are sustainable. 
In my opinion, affordable housing is a housing payment you can afford and still have money left over each month for reserves, crisis situations, doctor bills. When you have to decide between paying <clears throat> your prescription or your housing payment, these are situations you do not want to find yourself in. So affordable housing to me really is a sustainable payment where you can comfortably afford it each month, still have money left over for utilities, reserves, and give your family some type of quality of life. Thank you, Ty. Chuck, you got to follow up on that one. <laughs> well, um, so to me, when I was thinking about this question, you know, it's really about access, I think, and um, access to sustainable housing. Um, you know, the, when you look at the whole topic, it's just, um, it's overwhelming, and I'm just a dumb mortgage banker, so I can't solve the macro problems of, of home values and commodities prices and, <clears throat> you know, bureaucracies that, you know, make it harder to build. And, you know, there's so many aspects of affordable housing. So I just focusing on the, on the mortgage side of it, you know, sustainable home ownership. We had a, a big experiment pre-2007 with giving everybody mortgages that didn't work out quite so well. Um, but if someone wants to, you know, work and plan to, to get a house, you know, that's, that's just part of the dream of our, uh, of our country. And, you know, I put myself uh, in, in people's shoes of like, what's it like when you're first dreaming of buying a home? You know, maybe it's like, I want to get into a certain school district for my kids. I want, um, you know, I want a yard. I want, I just want a place, you know, all those different things. And, you know, it's heartbreaking. Um, to think that the pe that you know people who want, really want to do this and are willing to put the discipline into it because it is a responsibility, you know, really are, are priced out and can't find anything. And you know, we're in a, we're in a really severe cycle right now. So cycles do come and go, but it, it's uh, it, it's really concerning. And uh, you know, right now we've got a much bigger supply of buyers than houses, even. So you know, there's there, and I know we're going to talk about keeping this initiative going because it, that won't always be the case. But I think it's really it's really about that access and keeping the dream alive for people that really can can do that. And the last thing I'll say is that I've got you know we have th I have 300 employees and I've worked at bigger institutions in the past. And just from my employees, some of the stories that, that I've heard, and um, in particularly um, women, single women, you know, coming post divorce with children and you know, scraping it together to get a house and what it means for that security, you know, and hearing stories like that is just one, you know, aspect of, of what we're talking about because under, underneath this word is this thing, this concept called home that we all probably have in here, but, but other people want to get that security. And so if we can be a small part of making that happen for people, then, then I think there's nothing, nothing better that we could do or work on. Thank you, Chuck. John? Yeah, it's great. Uh, you know, like Chuck, I'm a dumb mortgage banker. Um, change lending is different um, in that, aside from being an independent mortgage bank, we are what's known as a CDFI, a Community Development Financial Institution. So when I think about uh, affordable housing, a lot of our focus uh, as an organization centers around uh, the expansion and availability of credit to historically underserved borrowers. Um, you know, it is the American dream to own a home. Unfortunately, um, systemically, there have been barriers um, to certain groups within this country to being able to actually get a home. And so, you know, we aim to uh, create uh, financing solutions that are unique for people that have unique situations. Um, there's a couple of stats that I've been made aware of over the last couple of years that uh, have been heartbreaking to me, but truthfully. Um, when you look at wealth creation in this country, we're the richest country in the world, um, when you look at the disparity between certain groups, it's stark. Uh, for example, 
wealth creation primarily rests with the home. It's the largest asset that 99.9% of all Americans uh, have, and so it is the basis of their wealth. And when you look at uh, wealth creation for Caucasians, for every $100 in wealth creation for a Caucasian, their Hispanic counterparts have $17 in wealth creation. African Americans have $13. Why is that? Because historically, it's been more difficult for uh, these minorities to be able to get access to financing, to buy houses. Um, people want to. They may not realize that they can. And so I think part of the solve for affordable housing has to look at creating unique programs and unique opportunities for people that don't realize that they can own a home that they actually can. Thank you, John. Ryan? Well, really not really nothing I can say after listening to everybody else. Um, what I will say is uh, I think everybody on stage really believes in uh, you know what we're talking about today. Um, I've only met David one time. I don't even know if you remember when we met. We met at the NBA in New York City. It was just like a really fleeting uh, meeting, just hello, how are you? But, um, you know, I'm, I'm getting ready to meet Sarah and her team in D.C. You know, Ty and I, our, our companies are getting ready to do business. John and I, uh, our, our companies are getting ready to do business together. And I, you know, it wasn't really tied to this panel, but it just, it's, you know, we all believe that, you know, there's an opportunity here to do better. And we're not here to talk about our companies. We're not here to, uh, you know, campaign. It's, it's, th this is a, a, a serious situation that we just have to do, as, as an industry, we have, we have to do better. And uh, the, the number one thing that came into my mind was perspective. Um, you know, I'm 47 years old. I'm a white male, middle-class family. I have zero perspective, zero. I don't understand, you know, most of the communities that we're trying to help, um, I, I want to I understand, but I just, I, I, I don't know, um, I'm trying to think of the best way to say this, but it's very difficult to put yourself in somebody else's shoes when you have not walked in those shoes. And um, I've been in the industry for 30 years and really only had the epiphany about how little I knew about five years ago. Honestly, I, I just didn't know. I, you think everybody has the same opportunity. Everybody can get a student loan. Everybody can get a mortgage. It's just not true. And um, when I realized that, it was a huge awakening. And so I've really been trying to dedicate what I, you know, what platform that I have to, you know, drive affordable housing forward, um, really educate, not the people that need housing, because I don't think they need education. They just need access to knowledge, if that makes sense. What, who, who really needs education is the mortgage industry. The mortgage industry is, is so, um, we, we, God, I can't even think of how to say this. Uh, we, everything is really vanilla. Like we look at everything very simplistically, but when you think about guidelines, when you think about the application of guidelines, when you think about underwriting, when you think about origination, Everything is so simple. It, it, you can't apply that same logic to every community that you work with. And I think we need to do be a better job of, of understanding who our customers are, who the well, what the consumers need, and realize that um, what we project is just, it's not reality. It's just not. And as an industry, we need to have really, really good conversations about the fact that that we don't know everything and um, we need to work together like we are today um, to have really like hard conversations about what we need to do to be better. And it's not about competition. None of us are up here campaigning for our company. Like we just need to do better. And I, I think, at least I hope everybody in the room could agree with that. And um, you know, I'm, I'm looking forward to this conversation. So. So I hope these perspectives are helpful. And in the way I think about affordable housing, I view it that every person who aspires to own a home and who's capable of making the monthly payments should have the opportunity to own a home. 
And whatever the barriers are that prevent that should have our utmost attention as an industry. And whether those are racial barriers, discrimination, poverty, education, whatever they may be, it's important to us because there's a, in my brain, affordable housing and first-time home buyers, there's a strong overlap there. And if we can't help the home buyers of the future buy a home, it impacts our entire industry. Because you don't have new first-time home buyers, you don't have move-up home buyers. And besides home ownership, there's a huge correlation to home ownership and wealth. So if we want to close the racial wealth gap, the first and best way to do it is to close the racial home ownership gap. So when we think about the challenges and try to dimension these challenges, you know, if we have a white home ownership rate that's in the high 60%, and we have a black home ownership rate in the low 40s, which really has not increased since the civil rights legislation of the 1960s, and we look at Hispanic and Asian home ownership rates sort of in between, there's huge upside. So to me, that's incredible opportunity as an industry to understand what the barriers are and how we as an industry can serve uh, the homeowners so that everybody who aspires to own a home has a fair opportunity to do so. So um, I let the panelists in no particular order um, just to share, you know, what are your insights on the barriers you see that we face and what do you think we should be doing as an industry? And um, I appreciate Brian's comments because I think we, even though there's people in this room for different lenders and we're all competing for business, this is an area we need to collaborate together, work together as a team, lift people up together as a team, and really help drive these solutions forward for the better of our entire industry. So I hope as you leave the room today, you heard something that's maybe a fresh insight, some fresh thought on how we can do a better job to better serve people today who many of who've been historically underserved. So in no particular order, John, why don't you? So, you know, I, I think one of the things that's important for us to recognize is that uh, the world is changing, and that's, uh, you know, obviously, obviously cliche, but the economy's changing in that um, we have a lot more, um, we call them gig workers. I didn't even really know what that term was a few years ago. Um, but I quickly learned what it was through the pandemic. Uh, gig workers are the Uber drivers and DoorDash delivery folks and Instacart and all of the people that Uber drivers, people that we can't live without um, on a daily basis. And most of these people are, it's a second job for them. It's a form of self-employment because most of the, those employees are 1099. And our industry uh, has been so vanilla that we don't recognize that as a sufficient means of being able to pay back the financing that we're going to lend to them. We think it's risky. We think it's risky. Yeah. And so I think until we collectively as an industry start to look for solutions that are specific to the changes that we're seeing in our country, in our economy, in the way that people work, I think we're going to continue to have this challenge. And if I can be on the soapbox just for a moment more, if you think about a lot of the folks that I just outlined in the gig economy for you, they're people of color. So it's, it's exacerbated in a way. Just Do you have a question or a comment? I'm not sure if the whole audience could hear the question or the comment, and I'll do a quick summary that may be totally terrible. Um, but, you know, so much of our industry, is what you're saying was built on W-2 income, salary borrowers, and more and more humans may have suites of income, where they may have a primary job that they enjoy, but, in, you know, let's say you love wedding photography, but between gigs, maybe you're an Uber driver, and so people might have suites of income. I think more and more younger people will not 
the traditional W-2 salary. So how do we document multiple sources of income? Did I summarize that correctly? Thank you. Oh, no, I was just going to say, I think that, yes, that was what I was going to say, and I'm really glad you brought it up. And it's even, I think, the, the, there's even lower hanging fruit, and it's, it's problematic that even folks who have a full-time job are less and less being classified as a W-2 employee. Think about the medical profession, you know, nurses. There's just, it is becoming, if you know anybody in, your, in their 20s, it's becoming harder and harder to get that sort of traditional W-2 job. So even if you have, even if you just have one job and you're working 40 hours a week, it's, you know, the way that that is, uh, is documented is different and, and we're not, I, don't, I still don't think we do a great job of um, meeting those people where they are. And when you think about uh, multiple jobs, you know, I think last time I looked, it was 72% of black men in underserved communities had at least one, one part-time job. Right, and then you think about like when I grew up, you know, you had, you know, my, my father uh, had one job. He worked at NASA. He was there forever, and it was just what you did. Like you had one job, that was it. And it's just not the case anymore. And I think the the industry is so slow to catch up to, um, you know, David. You and I talked about this via email. We talked about it on calls. Um, you know, the gig economy. Like it's it's looking at individuals that are doing everything right, they're making money, they're, they're, they're maintaining a, a, you know, a, a certain level of cash flow, and the industry looks at it as a higher risk, and it really isn't. And we, just, we, we have to do a better job of understanding that every, um, every community is not gonna be the same. You have certain communities that, uh, you know, you know non-traditional employment, variable pay, uh, multiple jobs, those are normal, that's normal for the economy there. And the industry looks at that as higher risk. And I think we inadvertently, um, we, we inadvertently you know, lock those people out or, or prevent them from, uh, from opportunities for home ownership because we, the, the, we, we train our underwriters, we train the industry to think that that's higher risk. And we just need to reevaluate how, um, how, we look at, how we look at that, how we look at communities, et cetera. So, sorry. If I could build on Brian's point for just a minute, I think it's also important when you talk about these differences and nuances within cultural communities that we're sensitive to these cultural nuances, right? There is a lot of work to be done to heal the financial trauma that has been caused to communities of color. Let's just talk about it. The communities of color out there, we have had our fair share of financial traumatic experiences. The Great Recession did not help us any. Actually, the black community suffered the worst. We lost the most wealth of any other demographic. And if you've seen your grandmother lose her home, or you've seen your aunt lose her home, and then you go to buy a home and you're told you can't qualify because you have three jobs and you appear high risk, this is not doing anything to bring people of color into home ownership. And lest we forget, by 2045, we're going to be living in a majority minority country. And so it is incumbent upon us to start to be sensitive to these cultural nuances and not look at these people as credit risks just because they have multiple jobs. Does uh, anybody in the room know which minority demographic actually performs the best when it comes to making their payments? I think it's the Latin community. Yeah, yeah. it's I-10. And uh, yeah, Hispanic, I-10, and, and they're the, one of the biggest groups that we don't lend to. And those individuals, those families do everything they can to make their payments. And I, I'm fighting with, with people every day, I think we probably all are, honestly, uh, trying to you know, expand access to credit and literally looking at a group of individuals that, that will do everything they can to make their payments and we're, we're preventing them from getting homes because it's, I mean, obviously there's a lot of political, political uh, nuance involved, but um, I, I just think we need to reset as an industry. We really, really do. I well, think what I think Brian that, and, go ahead, sir. No, I was just gonna say sort of building on that, you know, looking at extended households and multi-generational families, we're talking about cultural and sort of economic ways that families make things work. We are going to continue to see a growth in extended households, especially as folks age and, you know, I think we're, we're focusing on, there are so many big problems when you say which challenges to solve, but these are ones where we actually as an industry could do something about. You know, we, we can, these are, these are some of the problems that are solvable. Um, and so that, that's another one that, that weighs heavy, that that, you know, I think we'll continue to see more and we still don't do a great job of serving uh, multi-generational households. So, so here's an idea how we could solve this issue, because what, what we're describing here 
are, to me, it's solved by a different way of thinking. We as an industry have thought for many years, the way you document income is through a W-2 statement in file. And works great with salary buyers, but we just explained it doesn't work well for a lot of borrowers. So if you have a scenario with a human with multiple jobs, or maybe multiple humans in a house paying, um, and they might have multiple sources as well, electronic bank statements that show a human being's entire deposits of income, even if they have five different sources. Um, they may not have five different W-2s, but you can show January through December for 12 months in a row, this person was working five different jobs. They were consistently working every day because they have consistent money coming in from different sources. Each one individually is one pixel, but collectively they show a consistent picture of income. That's a great way for an industry. So it requires us just to think of things differently. If we keep doing things the same way, we shouldn't be surprised we don't keep getting the same results. We have to innovate, and, and there's ways we can responsibly do credit that address these barriers and open more doors to more people. That, that, that's one example. Uh, I'm going to push a CMBA commercial onto you just for a moment. Um, you know, we're talking about all of these ways that we can solve primarily right now. We're talking about through credit and extension of financing. Um, you know, that really speaks to a necessity for advocacy with our state and federal legislators. And so any of you that are out there, this is a CMBA event. If you're not members, you should become members, support this, because these types of initiatives are exactly why this association exists, is to help push these to the forefront. So our, our governors, uh, our senators, our congressmen they, and women, that they know that these are needs of the community. So I encourage all of you, if you're not a member, please join. That's good, because I, as I'm listening to all this right now, I'm thinking that what we've identified primarily thus far in the challenges, and you know, I know we'll talk about some opportunities too, is a capital markets issue. You know, as a as a smaller mortgage banker, we can only lend to the guidelines that we're given, like, or at least if we want to keep lending, we, that's how we do it. So, you know, I think that's that's where it really has to start with agencies and. and you know, for the people on the larger institutions, you know, like Loan Depot or Guild, I know they're influencing and working with FHFA. Uh, we have technology providers out there that are working, trying to change some of the, the thinking at the highest level. Um, so it really, but the voice has to be heard, like you're saying, John, and there has to be pressure through Congress to really make any changes. And lastly, I, I also am an optimist and a capitalist, and I think that as this need grows, you know, I mean, there's people out there that want to make money off of it. So, so it, you know, water seeks its own level, and we will get liquidity into this space. Question out there? Is there? Um, one here in the front. I'm sorry, one in the back with the mic. Go ahead. That's okay. Hi. It's Barbara Burton Landholm. Just a comment on the gig worker and the risk. Um, to me, I would think complete opposite. These, the behavior of a gig worker is somebody that is so resourceful that, you know, if it's not three jobs to make ends meet, it's going to be a fourth job. Um, so just a comment to kind of support what you're awesome. saying and how we need to change things and how we look at things. And Barbara, just add into your comment, as an industry, if we can start collecting this data and see how, how does a person with four or five jobs perform versus a person with one? Because to your point, if you have one job and you get laid off from that one job, you go to zero income. If you have four jobs and one of them goes away, you still have you know, three others, you could be an immediate backup while you find the other way to earn money. So I would love to see the industry collect data and be able to test over many years how these borrowers perform. And to your point, we may be surprised, they may be better performers. Question up front? Yeah, I was, I was just gonna say, that as mortgage originators, we, we can only underwrite to, to, to the, the folks who buy the paper, ultimately, to the standards. And we're kind of stuck to, into that box. And I think that, and before you even mentioned it, I was going to say that it's a data issue today. That Loan Depot, large, origin, large originators, big shops have this data. And you really got to convince, really, the, the government officials, as well as the big buyers of the paper, that there's a social component to, to, to the industry. It, when we talk about the industry, most people don't know what you're talking about because the industry is a lot 
there's a lot of components. Yeah. I think there's a lot of origination shops who do want to do the right thing. Most salespeople want to want to sell originate paper to anyone who basically can, can can get a loan. I think it's the buyers of the paper, it's the government agencies, and I think the data is what is the is the central spoke right now. If you have the information, like the point about the the Latin American borrower who performs really well, like that that comment, well. That's a natural, there's a natural answer to that. If they perform really well and you have that data, then they're going to add that to the guidelines. And of course, there should be a social component to that. But, but we, have to, we have to really lead with the information. And I don't think that that has been done to the, to the, to the extent that it has, it needs to be. And, you know, I'd like to give Sarah some credit because- um, Oh, I'm you know, sorry, I got, I got one more thing to say, Just real, oh, real quick. I was checking with the CDI, CDFI lender the other day. We're pulling a few of them. And they were telling me this one large lender in New York was telling me that how great of a CDFI lender they are to, to the, to the uh, communities of color that, that need, need to, to, to borrow money to buy homes. And they were telling me the rates are in the nines. And they were saying how great that is. So I was saying, wait a minute. You led with the idea that we should lend money to people of color and then the rate is nine. When, of course, mortgage rates are very high right now. But they're not nine. They may be seven, they may be you know, seven and a quarter, they may be wherever they may be. But I think there's, there's a fallacy in what's happening with some of the lending that's, that's occurring. I think we are, we're weaponizing the rates to, to, to give loans to people who need them at rates they can't afford. And I think that's also part of the data. And I, and, and I, I don't understand. It's, it's happening in the CDF. I'm not saying you guys are doing it. Not at all. I'm just saying I'm, it, it's, I see it and I think it's terrible. And I think it's a topic that should be you know, Well, addressed. and back to my comment about the trauma, right? So you're charging them more. They cannot afford it. That's not a sustainable homeowner. <clears throat> and eventually, it's going to turn into a foreclosure. And you're going to set that community, that neighborhood, that family, that racial demographic back just that much further. And so when we see things like this, people who are already disadvantaged being charged additional fees, more interest just to be capitalistic, I'm sorry, and take advantage of a bad situation because they're so desperate to get into a home. You know, we as, we as originators, and we need to speak up and say something. We need to say, this is not right. This is not okay. I'm not going to charge these exorbitant fees. I don't think this interest rate is fair. If we don't say something within the mortgage space, who's going to say it? The borrower doesn't even know they can advocate for themselves. That's the lack of education, right? OCC, who, who regulates a lot, of the, a lot of the banks who are, who are CDFI lenders, are saying okay to that. So when you talk about who, who has a voice, there's a lot of different voices here. And if you think about the OCC as a regulator who is, who is telling some lenders that it's okay to do that, well, what's, what's the purpose of, re, of, of having a, regu a regulator in the system? And that's why it's so important that we are you know, banding together and talking about this because it's not about us as individual companies. It's about us driving the industry forward. And you mentioned earlier, um, you know, talk about rates. And I, I, I read something, I think it was the Urban Institute, talked about uh, during the financial crisis, one of the biggest driving factors of uh, delinquency, had you would think it would have been some of the exotic products, it was, it was rates. It was higher interest rates. And, and so when you think about the way that the industry um, evaluates uh, um, risk, and we talk about income, we talk about employment, and this is something that I'm looking at personally, it's, I, I think we need to reevaluate the way we assess risk across the board, because it's just not the same as it used to be. It's, it's just that simple. And, you know, and I, I was going to go back to my comment earlier. I want to give Sarah a little bit of credit because, you know, in 30 years of, of being in this industry, I have never seen... Uh, FHA be as open-minded to meet and talk as you have been in the last year. And I just wanted to give you guys credit for that because like, I would struggle trying to get somebody on the phone and within the last two months between you and a couple of other colleagues, I won't mention their names, um, you've been so open about, I, I really do believe you, you, you actually want to, to listen to us, you want to hear our feedback, but it's not BS, it's, it's you actually want uh, to get our feedback, and you, I think I really think you want to to, to 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 take action there. So I just wanted to say thank you for that. I appreciate that, and and you know, to your comment, I was just thinking about my comments earlier, and I said, you know, as an industry, we don't do a great job. Well, I'm not part of the industry, but we are a community 
with similar aims. And I am in sort of a different part of the ecosystem as a government leader. Um, I've only been there, I've been there for four months. Um, and these are, we just got off of a, about 20 different lender roundtables through our various home ownership centers. And some of these issues we're talking about kept on coming up time and time again. And I think you're exactly right to point to like, to make the change, the data is needed because for many of the reasons you laid out, also the technology challenges. FHA, VA, you know, we, we don't even have our own automated underwriting systems, you know? So it's sort of a, to, to be able to, you know, we, we have a long road ahead of us um, to solve some of these issues. Um, I think the good news is that we have made, been making a lot of investments in technology um, and we really do have a will to try to get at some of these issues that are only going to continue to become, they're just going to continue to grow over the next generation. So. You know, I, I think a lot of this ties to, you know, as we look at these solutions and, and incorporate those into HUD guidelines and GSC guidelines, that's how we're going to make things better. So, you know, tying the, the point that Ty and, and, and Brian made, you know, as an industry, uh, a lot of barriers connect to other barriers. So for example, uh, Urban Institute said that 65% of black adults are below 620 FICO. And for the GSEs, the 620 FICO is an entry to admission. And even if you come in the door at a 620 FICO or sub 620 on the GSE pricing grids, if you're a 97 LTV, you have an LLPA of three and a half points. So the point Ty was making is, here's a bar we think is higher risk, so let's slap on a three and a half point LLPA fee that quotes equates to an interest rate at least 1% higher. How does charging a higher risk consumer an extra 1% of interest every month, which takes money out of their pocket, takes away their ability to accumulate wealth for future emergencies, make the system better? I would argue there's better ways for us to price risk, not to make things worse to the home buyer we're trying to help. So here, here's a stat I want to share that I, that I was stunned when I discovered this. The CFPB says there's 45 to 50 million adults in the U.S. today who do not have credit scores. Back to that 620 FICO minimum entry point. That population of humans is overwhelmingly disproportionately minority home buyers, potential home buyers. So HUD and the GSEs have a solution for people who don't have credit history. It's called the manual process. Anybody in this room ever do a loan through the manual process? It's a nightmare. What does it require? 12 months of bank statements, 12 months of rent checks with verification, and 12 months utility bills. If you accumulate that, that is over 100 pages of PDF. It is a nightmare. It's a haystack of data. Then you tell a human underwriter, look at this haystack, and you tell me and sign your name to it that this is equal to a credit history. Good luck getting that done quickly or not. So those 45 to 50 million humans that represents about 17 to 18% of adults. For the GSEs, anybody want to have a good guess for those 18% of humans, how many actually get a GSE loan under this solution that's been in place for, for several decades? Any guesses to the numbers? 2%, 5%? If you guessed 1%, you're about 100 times too high. It is 0.005 of 1%. So if you want to find underserved, if 99.9% .9 of humans in a group get no solution, that's pretty much underserved. So here's an example of something that can be solved. Because if you talk to underwriters why it's a nightmare, it's getting these pages of PDFs and making sense of it. This is another example where this electronic bank data can solve it today. You can pull a report from the current vendors and they can identify rent payment history. And they can go back 12 months plus. They can show utility bills. You can get one report of four to five pages that's created in one to two seconds that tells you in detail, nicely synthesized and cleanly presented, complete electronic history that is today produced by 100 pages of PDF. I mean, right there, that is such an easy, at our fingertip solution to an issue that is blocking out 99.9% you know, .9 of people in this large demographic. So again, it's another example. We have to think, think of things differently to solve these problems.
David, thank you so much for sharing that statistic about um, black Americans' credit scores, because I want to highlight the fact that black and brown Americans use credit very differently than the white community. And a low score is not necessarily an indicator of them having a poor credit history. Sometimes they have no credit history. Sometimes in our black community and our brown communities, we've been drilled into thinking credit is bad, don't get a credit card, credit is bad, don't get a credit card. And then you wanna buy a house or go buy a car and they slap some massive interest rate on there because you don't have any credit and then you fall behind because the payment's too much for you. Or you get a credit card and you were dumb in college and so now you're fearful of it so you never get another one. And so not oftentimes it is not an indicator of a borrower's ability to repay because these people have clean rental histories, they have clean utility payments, they've never missed a cell phone payment, they have clearly exhibited responsible payment patterns I think that the door to home ownership should be open to them as well. well. And I think John wants to step in. If you just give me one second. Um, that's what I meant by perspective. Like most of us don't have perspective. We just don't. It took me years to figure that out, years. And I'm embarrassed to even admit it in this room, but I feel like it's so important that I have to that I think the majority of the industry just doesn't understand the borrowers that we're trying to serve. That We just don't. Um, and then going back to uh, what David said earlier, it's, it's when, when you're applying uh, that logic and you've trained an industry of underwriters, processors, loan officers to think in a very specific manner, I don't necessarily think that people are blatantly being biased. I think there's bias for sure. There's no doubt about it. I don't, when, when you really look at guidelines, when you look at the way underwriters, um, you know, uh, when, when the way that they approach the decision logic, uh, they don't even realize that they're doing that. Like, just, they just don't. And we just have to completely reset and reevaluate the way we think. And it's, it, it's okay for us to be open-minded and say that it's not the same way it was 20 years ago. And I, I think it's really important that we have that conversation. So, sorry, John. You were a bunch of mortgage people in here, and so, you know, we've been really focused on the financing. I think there's a whole other side of this equation that we also need to address, and that's the fact that supply is seriously uh, outweighed by demand at this point. And, you know, interestingly enough, a few of us were here last night for a meeting and uh, somebody brought out some statistics about, uh, there's a lot of conversation about office conversions and can we convert these to affordable housing and why that's not possible because of square footage and sewer drainage and blah, 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 <laughs> and on and on. But I think that within there, there are some uh, legislative steps that could be taken um, to address this issue in a big way. And you know, my my brother is uh, he he owns a, a land use consulting firm, and his entire business is centered around changing the zoning laws for a building. It, it used to be residential, and they want to make it commercial now. And um, and so I think if we can make some of these types of things easier, we could open up gobs of housing for people. It'll depress prices and make it more feasible for people to get into homes as well. Because aside from the financing, it's home prices. I mean, I live in Orange County and it's really expensive to live here. Hopefully this isn't too loud. Um, I've been having a lot of conversations around this as well. And I, um, what about like the GSEs putting limits back on how many single family properties people can have because that's wide open. So then a lot of investors are then, you know, apt to buy, have multiple properties. First time home buyers can't afford, there's no affordable housing. So I think even back to that, like there needs to be some limits. There needs to be, we need to kind of control some of the single family home um, people that are able to purchase those, like how many you can have without maybe paying a penalty or some kind of a tax or I, I don't know, something. Um, and that would steer you know, investors back to where the money should go, like in investment properties, in condominiums, in commercial buildings, I don't know, just to try to um, you know, give opportunity, maybe waive the capital gains tax if you're selling to a first time home buyer and then maybe, I guess, putting a tax on someone that has, you know, 25 single family residents. 
Well, I do think, um, I just want to hit on a couple things that we're working on. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not from either of the GSEs, but I do know that they, I believe in December, raised pricing on second homes, and I think you can only do 10, which still, but, you know, so so it, I can't speak on their behalf, obviously, but it'd be interesting to talk with us, see how they see how they see this issue. Um, on our end, a couple of things we're doing, we put out a draft policy uh, this spring on ADU financing. And ADUs are not a panacea, but they can be very helpful in sort of a, you know, a, a <clears throat> pro-density, better for the environment, can help folks sustain their mortgage payment a little bit easier. Um, so we, we, we had a draft policy out. We, we got a bunch of feedback on it, and hopefully we'll... Um, you know, put out the final soon, but basically the idea is to allow um, home buyers to count a portion of the projected rental income on an ADU if they're buying a house with an ADU, and then also on the rehab side, being able to count some portion of the projected rental income. One barrier is that for our rehab product, it has to, you, you can't build a standalone unit um, we have a, there's a statutory limitation that Congress would have to fix, um, but so it, it, it can be used to fix up a garage, a basement, you know, add an addition, fix up an existing ADU. Uh, but we're, you know, we're, we're looking forward to moving forward on this and, and hope that it can be useful for folks who currently have very little way to get financing for an ADU. Um, we're also working on our rehab product, our 203K product. So we got a, great, a lot of great feedback and we put out a request for information um, and we are, you know, I think there's some good opportunities to make that a little bit more advantageous for borrowers and a little bit easier for lenders to use. Uh, and there are, you know, there's not much inventory out there and the the inventory there is needs a lot of work. So we are, you know, seems like one thing that's within our control is to try to bring that that program up to date. And so that's something that we're working on. Hey, Sarah, what can we do as an industry to help you drive that narrative forward? Because you, you and I talked about, um, you know, the detached uh, ADU. What can we do to help you um, I'm sorry, I'm not trying, but I, 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 don't I want am to put like you on the spot, legally but, not permitted right. to, but I, I appreciate the sentiment. Yeah. <laughs> So, um, you know, I know we're running out of time and, you know, there's been a lot of dialogue around what needs to happen, but there are things happening right now, too. So just talking about what's the opportunity, um, you know, as a, again, we're, you know, I've said I'm, we're a smaller company that's out there. And uh, I was back in national secondary and after meeting with both with agencies and investors, and realizing how much pressure is coming, you know, around affordable lending initiatives, you know, I saw a real gap, and which meant an opportunity for us just to use that wave right now. So, you know, whether it's you know enhanced pricing, um, because some of the the larger banks out there are down to the zip code level now, and they have lookup tools, and so we can get into in different communities with with different products um, and really working with agencies on training and everything that they have. There's, there's a, lot of, a lot of work on this being done. You know, uh, I know there's a lot of frustration because it's not fast enough, but I would just encourage people to look at what you can do right now with the products that are out there. I mean, um, in the non-QM space and, and in your space, you know, there's, there's better, um, better products now for self-employed borrowers, for people that have small businesses. You know, different types of alternatives that are there. Um, retail mortgage bankers are really good at getting into the communities, working with the HFAs, and there's a lot of uh, a lot of great opportunities. There's hundreds of DPA programs that are out there, so there's a lot that can be done. You know, I mean, uh, and and a lot of education that needs to be done. Uh, the other thing we're trying to marry that up with is. We started an affinity program, which is not a new idea. Uh, typically, it's been like going into corporate verticals and offering a discount and education for the employees of that. But you, we've taken it down to anything uh, for nonprofits, for churches, you know, uh, municipalities, those types of people, so we can get out and do lunch and learns and bring, you know, a myriad of programs that are out there right now for people and start getting them prepared to buy homes and really keeping people encouraged right now because it will change, but, you know, We've got a backlog of buyers. I think almost everybody out here, there's a pipeline of prequels that, that's really deep. So um, just take advantage of what's out there. And then, you know, on the advocacy side of advocacy side of it, you know, we got to keep the pressure on. 
And just building on that, I know we're running out of time here, but final point. This affordable housing conversation is a very hot topic right now because the market has shrunk and people are trying to look for new ways to make money and they're like, oh man, we haven't looked at this community. Let's go over there. Or, you know, let's, let's focus on affordable housing so we can bring more buyers in. My fear is that the next refi boom or the next time rates drop substantially, we're all going to run for the quick money and we're going to forget that this is a real systemic issue that we're having in this country that is only going to get worse. So my cry for all of you would be to please continue to focus your efforts on doing whatever each individual person in this room can do to increase affordable housing initiatives in your specific company. We're down to the last minute and a half. Any other closing thoughts here before I wrap it up? Anybody else to add? Just to build on what Ty just said, talk is cheap. Like we, we all need to take action. And I think we, um, it, it's, it feels really good to say that you're, um, you believe in this initiative, but you real, we, we just all have to do more. Like it, it, it's, it goes back to what my grandmother used to say, which is it's, it's about what you do when nobody's looking. And that's really what we need to do. We just need to keep driving this forward. And no matter what happens in the next few months, next few years, let's just, let's not take our eyes off of this and let's really try to, as an industry, do better. Climate, insurance, we have to talk about it. And I think there's a strong connection to affordable housing because if people can have energy efficient appliances in their home, it lowers their monthly cost of home ownership, reduces climate change, and it takes away emergency appliance repairs as an expense that can destabilize people. So um, obviously a lot more to talk about here. Um, the fact that we're running out of uh, time for all these ideas to me, it just shows what a great panel we had today. I wanna thank our panelists who took the time to come in today and share thoughts as you walk out of the room today, I hope you heard very candid, passionate, from the heart comments that something was new, something was a different way to think of something, and that as a group, we can collectively drive innovation for our industry, because we have to think of things differently. We have to approach the problems differently, or we're gonna solve it. And the importance of solving these issues is, affects so many parts of our society beyond just our business. And to John's point, um, one of the best ways to collaborate is through our state and federal, I'm sorry, state and national trade associations, both the MBA, California MBA, as well as the national MBA. And many of us are involved in different ways. Um, the more we can share ideas, share successes as, as lenders, we will make our industry better. So um, thank you for your time today um, and love to continue this conversation. Thank you. And thanks for joining us this week on Connect. Uh, to access any of our past episodes, you can follow us on our YouTube channel. We're also available on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. That's it for this week, and we'll see you next time on Connect.